Good morning. It's good to be back. Lisa's here this morning with us, and I am so glad that we are back. Um, Many of you uh, probably know that we have been uh, on leave for the past four months uh, after the death of our son, uh, Aiden, 17 years old. And we are back now, and uh, it's good to be back. So thank you for being here today. You know, we have been a part of this church for 23 years, uh, and it's been our honor to serve and just be a part of everything that's happened here over the many years, and there's a certain joy that comes in being part of a church for that long, as I've been able to watch some of you that have been here a long time, and some not as long, but just watch you through your life's journey. And so that has been a a highlight for Lisa and I, just to see that and to watch people grow, and we get to watch, you know, when you get married, or you become a Christ follower, or you get baptized, or have kids, or graduations, or promotions at work. Uh, And with that, though, is the flip side of that, is when you go through life struggles, So when there's times of just great loss and adversity and pain, uh, we have prayed with many of you over the years. We've been there with you. We've have done funerals for your family. Like we've we've been there through the good and the tough times of life. And I just want to say, both on behalf of Lisa and myself, thank you for returning that to us. Thank you so much. During this time, you were there. You loved us and you served us. Hundreds of you came to our son's funeral that was right here. This is the first time that I've been back in a service since his funeral. His casket was right there. And, and, and this is the first time being back. It's a little emotional. Uh, but you, you came and you honored us with your presence. You honored us by being here. You honored us by sending texts and emails and phone calls. And I know I haven't gotten back to hundreds of you, but we read every single one of them. Uh, and that helped carry us through. You, you sent us flowers and gift baskets and you sent us gift cards. You sent lots of food. That was awesome. You know, and, and you just did all that. And so thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, We really appreciate that. That's part of our healing. That's part of how we're here today uh, to have a community like New Break Church. So thank you so much. I also want to just thank our our leadership of elders. A few of them are here today uh, who just graciously have helped lead but also gave us the space to be able to grieve and to be able to just kind of take a a pause from ministry and the demands and stress of that. Uh, We have a great staff as well. Our uh, Pastor Marcus and the whole team hit Tirasana like and all the volunteers, you guys just stepped in. You've done an amazing job while we've been gone. Thank you so very much. We appreciate it. So now people are asking us as we've been back for a couple weeks now, people are asking, so how are you doing? <laughs> so I thought I'd do it en masse instead of one by one. Okay. Uh, but you could ask us separately if you want, but how are you doing? And, and that question, we've thought how to answer that. And we say, Lisa and I, we say we are grieving appropriately. What we mean by that is that we're grieving and going through this process where we believe God is healing us And God is bringing us to a place where we will see a greater purpose in our lives and what happened and the tragedy of what happened that we believe God is is working that through. We're not done. We haven't learned everything. We're not done grieving, but we're we're going through this process of that and, and how we get through it. Because the deal is this, when you lose a child, you don't get over it. We live in a culture where we don't grieve very well. It's like, you know, okay, back at work in two days, let's go, you know, and get over it at some point. Are you going to ever get over this? Like that, you don't get over it. (laughs) It's not like all of a sudden after a certain period of time, okay, I'm done, I'm good. What it is, is you learn to move forward, forward with it. And that's profoundly different of how to move forward. And so we're going to share this morning, I'm going to share just a little bit of our journey that we've been on for the last four months of just how God is working that in us and how we're moving forward. And my hope is, the reason for sharing that, is to give you hope. 
Because I know right now, as I look around, people in this room are going through different levels of loss and grief and pain. It's just simply anytime you get a crowd together, there's people who are mourning, there's people who've lost a loved one, lost a job, a marriage, a family's breaking up. It doesn't matter what it is, it's all the same. And it's not, it's not a competition who's got the worst story. Like grief is grief, loss is loss. Everybody's going through it. And how do you do that? What is the journey? And, and I wrote the message, this message and I entitled it this, how do I grow through what I am going through? Now, not how do I get through, how do I grow through? How do I grow through what I'm going through? Because I think that's the actual question that we need to be asking when we go through pain or grief or hardship in our lives. Okay, I'm going to tell you a funny story for a second, okay? Uh, about 15 months ago, Pastor Marcus, your, your campus pastor, Pastor Marcus, and I went and rode camels. It was awesome. We went and rode camels in Egypt. <laughs> And these are big beasts, by the way. Um, and what I did is on this, we were on a vision trip for some of the projects we're doing of uh, clean water filters and stuff. So we took one day to sightsee, which was awesome. And we rode camels. And what I learned, I learned a lot about camels, but I also learned some things about Pastor Marcus. Uh, and one of those was that he has this really high-pitched squeal when he's scared. <laughs> I was like, who did that? Was that the camel? <laughs> We were getting on the camels, and so I don't know if you've ever ridden a camel, but they get all the way down on their haunches, and they almost their bellies hitting the ground, and they sit down, and so then you get on this kind of makeshift saddle to get on them. Now, the way that they get back up is they take their hind legs and extend them all the way up, but not the front. So just picture that, and you're up, you know, six, eight feet. And so if you're not careful, you're gonna go, you know, over tea kettle, right? Yeah, I said that. And you're gonna go, you're gonna fall, because it, and so he was watching me going, oh, laughing, and he didn't know that his trainer whacked the other camel on the butt, and it started moving, and he's, ah! and he got this scared, and he's like, ah, hey, ah. and he starts getting all hyperventilating, and he's like, wait, hey, and then the camel's trying to chew his leg, it was awesome. <laughs> Yes, Pastor Marcus, I know you're on vacation right now, and it's awesome. And if you're watching, why are you watching? You're on vacation. Anyway, yes, I'll, good. when you're not here, I'm going to make fun of you. He's watching. I know he is. <laughs> so one thing that we learned about camels is this. Camels are extremely resilient. They are resilient animals. They can walk hundreds of miles, you know, packed full of, you know, of heavy, you know, heavy sacks and, and just, you know, all kinds of stuff over their backs and, and carrying people. And they can go hundreds of miles and just keep going. Like even without water, they just keep going and going. Super resilient animals. But what's interesting about that resiliency is that, and what they do, which is different than how horses would do this, they will go and go and go and go and go. And if there's no oasis or no water and, and you're getting lost or whatever happens, at some point, that camel will stop, get back down on its haunches, and fall over and die. With almost like no warning. See, the issue is they're resilient, but they, 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 their reserves evaporated. They went through all the water in their humps. There's no water in their humps. You guys like, this is like the last service goes, what? They got water in the humps? No, they had, it's not where they were. They told me that when I was a kid. I still believe it. They run out of their reserves. They run out of everything and they fall over and just die quickly. We can be like camels. We sometimes lack reserve. And so what happens in our lives, stuff hits us and we just go, 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 go. Like you think for a minute of the pandemic. For some kids and people, they'll look back at that time as a life-changing, generational-changing moment. For some of us, it was World War II or it was 9-11. But people will look back at the pandemic and be like, that was gnarly because it changed the landscape of a lot of things. Now, we all are resilient and we're out and we're like, we're going on vacation, we're going here, we're going, like, this is everybody in the world is getting it all out of their system right now. The problem is there's a lot of reserves that people went into it, they were low and came out of it low. And that was the case for Lisa and I. 
prior to the pandemic hitting, you know, there was just the issue of, of our son and what he was going through with his mental health issues and challenges. And when the pandemic hit, it times tended. Like so many of our kids today, you talk to any of the kids in junior high and high school and college age, they'll tell you this was a gnarly time for them and they struggle with all kinds of issues of depression and anxiety, panic. And that was the case for our son. These things began to emerge before the pandemic, but then it just blew it up even more. And so as we saw this and we're trying to help our son Aiden, what had happened is through that time is, you know, these are chemistry issues and we got counseling for him and therapy for him. We had him in every program. We had him in five different residential programs. We had him in dialectical behavior and Christian programs where we pray night and day. Like we, we did everything. We refinanced our house. We paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to help him. And what had happened is as that went on, about halfway through, he decided to try to medicate himself. And so on top of the mental health challenges, you now have sub substances involved. And so then this cocktail is horrible. And so he experimented and tried that and, and you know, to no avail. And after he got out of the last program, the fifth program, he came back home. And this was about November last year and started to do really good. Began to have a really positive mindset. We thought there had been some good changes going on in his life and he got enrolled back into high school. And this, we were on this upswing like, hey, this is gonna, you know, this is good. This is good momentum for him. And if any of you have ever been involved in recovery, whether from mental health or depression or from you know, use, drug use, substances, you'll know that recovery is never a straight linear line. You were here and you went here and now you're all better. That's not how it works. I know, personally, that's not how it works. It's kind of an up and down to where you gotta get to. And so for him on that day, he was feeling depressed and full of anxiety and he decided to medicate. And unfortunately, what he got was poisoned with fentanyl. And so the unthinkable happened. Our son died. You know, last year alone, there's 140,000 fentanyl poisonings in America. So this is happening to our kids, all of our kids. What used to be just trying to experiment with something or trying to use something because of, you know, just trying to feel better about yourself now is a death sentence. And so the unthinkable hits our family. And I remember thinking that, you know, it would have been different if we were on a high and had lots of reserves and we were good and, and then this happened, but it, that wasn't the case. We were already on low. We'd already been years into this. And Lisa and I, when we, you know, are in this room doing CPR and we end up at the hospital and he's laying on a gurney and he's dead and, and the doctor comes in and we're undone. We're undone. Like there's, there's nothing left. <laughs> we're completely undone. And I thank God for people because within the next few days as we were just going through the absolute shock and trauma of this, uh, Pastor Rick and uh, Kay Warren, they're pastors up in Orange County, they got a hold of us and said, hey, why don't you guys come up to Orange County and, and let us talk with you and just share with you kind of our journey because they'd went through the same thing. Their son Michael had struggled with years with depression and anxiety and ultimately committed suicide and it's all over the news. So it's nothing I'm saying is they're, you know, something they told us in, in confidence. And they said, come on up and let's talk. You know, and they were 10 years out, of, out from it. And so we went up there and spent the better part of the day with them. And it, it helped so much because in the early days of this, we weren't sure who to talk to. I mean, we talked to other people that were grieving and, and some people, you know, with kids that had passed. And, but the, the mixture of being a pastor and all that, right? It just, I needed to hear from somebody. We needed to hear from somebody. And so I remember Pastor Rick looking at me and saying, you know, within the first 10 minutes I was there, he could tell, he could just tell where I was at. And he said, Robert, you are a person before you are a pastor. 
most of us go, well, yeah, of course. But, you know, when you give your life to serving others, when you give your life to helping and praying, and that's your calling in life, it's hard to take that pause. And, and he said, you're a person before you're a pastor. And he said, you know, the first thing you need to do is just stop. <laughs> stop. <laughs> And take a look at what's going on in your life, your wife's life, your other son who's living, Corbin, and take, assess the damage that's happening. And he said to me, you need to stop in ministry for a while. You need to take a break and you need to take care of yourself, your wife, and your other son. Because losing a child is so much different than other losses. In fact, there's no English word in the dictionary for it. When you're married and you're a wife and you lose your husband, you're a what? And when you're a husband and you lose your wife, a widower. When you're a kid and you lose your parents, you're an orphan. There's no word in the English dictionary for when you lose a son or a daughter. Now recently, there's a word that's been creeping its way into the English vernacular, and it comes from one of the oldest languages in the world, Sanskrit. And that word is viloma, viloma, which means literally against the natural order. Because that's what it feels like. It feels like, you know, you hear people like, they weren't supposed to die before me. It's against the natural order. We use other words like bereavement, which means to be robbed, like a bear robbed of its cubs. So what that means is, and I wrote this down, it means that the kind of grief we were feeling in that moment, or any of you that have ever gone through that, you feel robbed. You feel this pain physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You feel anger, frustration, sadness, because grief is a natural reaction to, to pain and loss in our lives. And when it's a catastrophic loss that is against the natural order, what do you do? You're undone. And then pair that with compounded grief. Many of you know my story where in 2008, my dad, I got a phone call and they said he's dead. And I went to his apartment. He's laying face down in the apartment. And, you know, we get somebody to come pick him up. And, and that's a Saturday. And that night I come here and preach. And next Sunday, I speak twice more. And then six months later, my mom dies from cancer. And a few months later, my grandpa dies. And then a few months later, my grandma dies. So in about a year time frame, I'm losing four of my close family. But I never stopped. I was resilient. I just kept going. I preached that night, kept going with ministry, never took a break. I just kept going. I mean, you look back now and it's like, what were you thinking? I was just like, nope, I'm just going to keep. So I didn't allow myself to stop and to grieve. I was resilient, but what I didn't realize is I was losing my reserves. And then when our son died, guess what came all flooding back? <laughs> all that grief, all that loss, all that pain. So now I'm, I'm trying to deal with this insurmountable mountain of pain and grief. Some of you have done that. You've pushed through. You've experienced loss. And again, it's loss of any kind. You know, whether it's a job or a family or whatever, or, you know, or loved one, it's any kind of loss. We tend to just push because we're resilient. We can do this and we just think we can do this. But I want to talk about what it takes to get beyond that. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. And I want to tell you about this passage of Scripture before you read it as you're turning there. And uh, it's an interesting passage. I, I've spoke on this passage many times, and particularly the chapter before, which is a big, big story in the Bible. But I've never realized it in the context of this. And so God kind of opened it up a little bit more to me over the last few weeks that I've been preparing for this message. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick what's called Sitzen Laban, which is the uh, situation of the context of this passage. If you read it right now, you're not going to get it, especially if you have never read it before. You're going to be like, what is this? Because I'm literally jumping right in the middle of a story, okay? So this is out of what's called First Kings. 
First Kings and Second Kings are in your Old Testament of your Bible or your device that you have. It originally was written as one volume, and it was to chronicle all the kings of Israel. And so this book was written starting with King David, who was the pinnacle and the start of the, you know, the best times of Israel and their kingdom. And it goes all the way through to the end of Kings of the demise of Israel and its downfall and ultimately all of them going into exile as slaves because they broke the covenant law that they had established through Moses and then through David as the king. So it goes through King David, then his son Solomon, and then the, what happens is Israel divides into two geographical locations and they're fighting with each other. Uh, ten tribes and two down below. So the north is called Israel, the south is Judah, but it comprises the people of God. And so they're going through all these different kings. And what happens is in Israel, the northern kingdom, from the time that they split to the demise, there were 18 kings over a period of several hundred years. So we're going to talk about the sixth king in line. His name is Ahab. Say Ahab. Okay, so King Ahab is where we're going to start and talk about this story. King Ahab had this wife who wasn't an Israelite. She was a Canaanite. She was a Canaanite woman, and she worshipped other gods. So Ahab marries this woman named Jezebel. Everybody say Jezebel. Yes, everything you're thinking is true. Uh, Jezebel. Now, Ahab thought he was the head of the house, but she knew she was the neck, which could turn the head any way she wanted. Don't do this at home. That's bad. Don't even go there. <laughs> and so they come into power, and she's like running the show behind the scenes, and everything's happening. It's a mess. And now God is not happy with these, or these kings because these kings are corrupt. They're no longer following the covenant. They're in idolatry, worshiping other gods, Baal, and they're absolutely, absolutely unjust to the people. So they send, God sends what's called prophets. These prophets aren't like wizards or magical. They're people who are people of God that God sends to bring his message of correction to say to the people and the kings, hey, you've broken God's covenant. You're involved in idolatry and injustice. You need to stop it or some bad things are going to happen to you. And so God sends Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel with a message. They don't like his message. And for three years, the judgment of God is on Israel and things are happening, famine and stuff. And what happens is they're trying to kill Elijah and he's hiding from him. He finally resurfaces and says, hey, King Ahab, meet me on top of Mount Carmel. You bring all your prophets of Baal, 450 of them. We're going to meet on top of this mountain. I'll come by myself. We're going to have a showdown. We're going to finally make, decide who's God and who's not God. He's like, all right. So they get up to the top. They say, okay, here's the rules. So Elijah says, here's the rules. We're going to prepare an offering. Whatever God answers by fire, that's God. So he goes, you go first. So all the 450 prophets of Baal all night long, God, answer us, Baal, answer by fire, you know, make this happen. Nothing happens. Elijah gets up and says a very quick 30-second prayer. God strikes a big old lightning bolt, blows up the offering and everything, and then all the people are like, oh my gosh, Yahweh is God. Yeah, yeah he's God. And so then Elijah says, okay, people of Israel, grab all these prophets of Baal, all 450, take them down to this valley and take your swords and hack them to pieces and kill them. So that's what happens. Now we're here. <laughs> Did you like that? That was quick, huh? <laughs> I just gave you like 14 chapters. Uh, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> okay, needed water. Okay, so now, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah did, right? How he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, Look, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, I'm going to find you, hack you up. So she put, puts a hit on him, puts his name on a piece of paper. He's going at, you know, she's going after him. So Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself then went another day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. And he says to God, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. 
I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. What we don't see, and it's not really in the narrative, but we know is true, is the human side of what he just went through. Three years under intense stress of hiding from Ahab and Jezebel trying to find him. He does this massive showdown on top of Mount Carmel. And, you know, that's gnarly in itself. He's like, what if God doesn't answer, right? So, you know, worried about that, but God does. I mean, I would be wondering like, wow, what if he doesn't show up and burn this thing? <laughs> and then to sit there and go into this valley and be a part of watching 450 enemies, prophets of false God, be slaughtered. Okay, this isn't you on your couch watching Netflix. This is you there. Picture that for a minute. Swords and hands, battle, blood, guts, all of it. Let me tell you, that takes a toll on the human psyche like most of us don't have any concept of. And the reason why I said most of us is because I know some of you either are or have been in the military and you have been part of active combat. And those who have, I have not, but I've talked to many because we have a church of a lot of military people. They'll tell you there's a reason there's called PTSDs. There's a reason that it, the stress and adrenaline has a toll and takes a toll on your life. It's real. It's gnarly. And so Elijah is in this place where he's like, I'm done. I just want to die. I can't take anymore. I have no reserves. It's over. And then all of a sudden, as we read on, an angel touches him. And he says, get up and eat. And he looks around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and then he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Hey, you need to eat again, for the journey is too much for you. So get up. And he got up and ate and drank. Elijah's broken. He's stressed. He's traumatized. He's done. And God's deep theological word to him is rest eat and drink. <laughs> and I would say that's true for us because we don't grasp our limitations. Here's the thing. When it comes to building reserves in our lives and it comes to doing that, here's the issue. We recharge our cell phones more than we charge our lives. I'm going to need somebody to tweet that. <laughs> <laughs> We recharge our cell phones more than we do our own lives, right? We'll go until we're done. We think we're resilient. We think we can handle this. We think we can do it until we, like a camel, stop and plop over. You see, stopping and surveilling the damage is about building reserves and not just resilience in our lives. Building reserves. See, God know, that knew what Elijah needed. He said he needs to rest. He needs some food and water. And maybe you're here today and you're going through pain in your life. And here's the thing. I know that everybody is in a different situation in how you're able to build those reserves. Not everybody has the opportunity to take as much time as we did. Or maybe your time is less or, or wherever you're at. It's, it's not about how your situation is the same or different than mine. It's how are you going to do it? Because you have to, because we don't realize that when we're on our low reserves, our lives are at stake. We just don't see it. We're like the camel. We just think, and then boop, it's too late. It's really about how to figure out how to build those reserves. For Lisa and I, we got a lot of prayer and counseling early on. I mean, that was the big thing for us. We had, you know, we needed it. We needed people to come into our lives, people to help us, um, you know, take care of ourselves first, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You know, it's like the flight attendant when you go on a flight, right? They get up and they do their whole spiel with the buckle. And then if the cabin pressure drops, right, the mask comes down. And what do they tell you to do? Put it on first, Right. And then they tell you, pick which kid you like better to put it on next. <laughs> yeah, put it on first. You know, 
And we have to tap into others for help. That's the thing. You know, we, again, we had a lot of family members who were right there with us. You know, I had my sister, Aaron, and brother-in-law, Jonathan, who's here. And we had, you know, my brother, Jeff. I don't know where he's at. He's running around. He won, he's the one who brought this table up. Uh, you know, I had people in my life, but then Lisa had people in her family that came up. She had her brother, uh, Glenn, and his wife, Sherry. Immediately the next day, we're here from British Columbia. The next day after Aiden passed. And then her father, um, uh, Sarge, and, and Ruby came from British Columbia a couple days later. Uh, we had his, her sister, Mel and Gordon, came all the way from Cambodia within a few days. Like, they all flew here. Like, we're here. We're helping. And then we had a lot of just friends and different people that were helping us, like immediately living with us. They moved in and said, we're here to help. And they were. They were an amazing help. It was awesome. They dropped everything. I think because some of them really recognized the catastrophic nature of what we were going through and not that just this event happened, but everything leading up to that. And so a lot of practical things came out of that for us over the next four months. You know, some of those practical things, and you can write these down, is just to engage in these activities that bring you peace. Like, how do I stop and surveil the damage? How do I make changes? How do I really do something that's going to make a difference? And, and that's to stop and, and make a decision what's going to bring me peace right now? Because there's still demands and there's still things happening, right? You still are living. And so that was an important thing for us, bringing things that bring peace, but uh, not more stress. So we're talking about how to reorganize our lives for reserves, right? That's what we're talking about. Also setting boundaries on your time and your energy as you're grieving, setting boundaries on that. I love the phrase that Kay said to Lisa. She said, I had this mantra I picked up and it says, when I can, I will. Because we're resilient, but when I can, I will. So it's setting boundaries on our time, our, our commitments, uh, and again, getting enough rest and nutrition and health and staying hydrated and having exercise. For me, the first couple of weeks coming out of when Aiden passed, within the first three or four weeks, I, all I did was forklifts. I just ate and ate. It's a great healer for grief. I, no, it's not, but I thought it was. I, how many carne asada burritos can you eat in a day? Um, yeah. I just ate and ate, and I was like, whoa. So about three weeks, four weeks into it, I was like, this is not going to go well. So I made a decision for me to move forward. What's a step to move forward to build reserves? What are, what's a step I could take? I was like, I need to really just decide I'm going to have better nutrition and exercise and stay hydrated and get rest. So I made sure a minimum of eight hours of sleep. Sometimes I slept 10. Sometimes I slept 16. That might have been just a little depression setting in. But I got sleep. I got, you know, we ate and I ate good. So I've lost today. I've lost 38 pounds. So... <laughs> Um, my app came up the other day and it said, you've lost the equivalent of a microwave oven. <laughs> I was like, I think that's good. <laughs> uh, but I'm not done yet. Okay. I'm on a mission because, you know, one of the things my son Aiden used to say to me all the time was like, Hey dad, you need to watch your weight. You know, like, and so for whatever reason I didn't, I ignored that. I thought this is a way to honor him. This is a way to honor him. I know it's too late for him to see it, but okay, let's do this. It's on. So part of that was just then building a simple routine into my life, having protracted times with God, taking time to read, enjoy our house, cooking meals without being rushed. That was all healing me and bringing restoration and reserves back into my life. For Lisa, she did something that I just I think is just so awesome. Um, and that was this. So we buried Aiden. Um, in Poway at Dearborn uh, Cemetery. And so she goes every day, not so much now, but she, for the first, I don't know, months, went every day to go visit Aiden's graveside. And I said to her, I said, wow, so like, are you going to keep doing that? Like, you know, I just wanted to know, right? I wasn't judging her or anything. And she said, no, I, I want to go. And she said, look, I know Aiden is in heaven. And the reason why we know that is a few months prior, he gave his life to Jesus, committed his life, and then he got baptized. And we have the video of that. Like, you know, he, he wanted to change. He wanted God's help. And she goes, look, I know he's in heaven. 
It's just, this is where his body is. And here's something that only moms are gonna get in this room right now. Only moms are gonna get this. Your kids are part of your body. You had them in your body, you birthed them. And so there is a special connection, sorry guys, that you're never gonna have with your kids that, that mom has, right? She said, well, he's part of my body. And so for me to be here, I'm at peace. I, I can enjoy. I know he's in heaven. I know his body's here, but, but I, I feel close to him. And this is a place of solace, a time to connect with Jesus. And she goes sit four hours sometimes just reading the Bible and just, it's just awesome. Sorry, I'm going to break up here. And it just, you know, like it was just this beautiful connection that, that filled her tank and brought reserves back into her life. Look at whatever you're facing today, whatever you might be going through, can I just say, see yourself as a person first. Care for yourself. Care for your reserves. Care for, for you. Because you know why? God cares about you. We just read this story about how God cared about Elijah so much that he, all he cared about was his basic needs. You know, what he needed in the moment. Does that matter to God? Of course it does. You matter to God. Let's finish this story in Kings. I missed a few points, sorry. That's a good point, by the way. You know what they tell you? They say when you go through uh, grief, which we're still going through, is you get called hazy, foggy brain. <laughs> yeah, this is what you're witnessing right now. <laughs> Grief is really not a problem to be solved, but this process, right? So I don't even know what the next slide is. There we go. That's the one. It is a process. I just told you the process. So if you're taking notes, go back and write that down. So let's finish the story. So verse 8, Elijah, he gets up, right, after God told him, and he eats and he drinks and he's strengthened by that food. He travels 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, it's really easy to read that and just skip over this. So he's on his way for 40 days and 40 nights, traveling all the way to the south, to the Sinai Peninsula, to Mount Horeb. Horeb is in the Sinai Peninsula and where most scholars believe when they refer to Mount Sinai, it's, all, it's the same, it's Mount Horeb. And the reason why it's called the mountain of God, because this is where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God when the children of Israel were in the desert before they crossed over and into the promised land. And so to the Jews, to the Israelites, this was, it's a sacred ground for them. It's a sacred place where God gave them the covenant and gave them all this. And so it's really important to them. And no, his presence necessarily wasn't there. His presence was in the temple. And, but now as Christ followers, where's, where's God's presence now? It's not a trick question. We get filled with the spirit of God when we become believers. The spirit's in us now. So that's a whole other sermon series about the presence of God. Um, and so to them, this place was super important. And so look where Elijah's going. He's running to where he thinks God is, not away from. And so he gets there and he goes into a cave. He spends the night and the word of the Lord comes to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he's like, well, I don't know. And the Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. In other words, he's, he's saying, hey, my presence is about to show up. And so you could just picture him going to the mouth of the cave. And it says, a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains. It shattered the rocks before the Lord. So it's like a hurricane, like, I don't know what it was. It was massive Santa Ana. <laughs> and after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the wind. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his head and he goes to the mouth of the cave because here comes God's presence. It's this awesome moment. And then God says to him again, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't read this like, what are you doing here? It's like, hey, what are you doing here? You know, like a gentle voice, right? And he replies, well, 
I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They tore down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Oh, how we say that. I'm the only one going through this. Nobody else, right? So he's like, hey, there's nobody, God. I'm the only one left. And then as you finish the story, God, it's not... We're not going to read it, but as you finish it, God then basically gives them some instructions on what to do next. In other words, you're not going to get killed. You're not going to die. I got plans for you. So he's telling them to go anoint some new people kings. There's going to be a whole leadership change that's happening. And he's like, hey, I'm not done with you. I got stuff for you to do. And then he says this aside God does to Elijah. Hey, and by the way, I got 7,000 prophets who have not bent their knee to Baal in Israel. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. 7,000? So he gives them this encouragement, you're not alone. You're not by yourself. So how do we grow through what we're going through? And that is this, listen for the gentle whisper of God in your life. Listen for God to give you this gentle whisper. It's hearing that, it's stopping to, to be in his presence. Like when this first happened for Lisa and I in the midst of the trauma and heartache, God seemed silent. I just, can I just be honest with you for a minute? God didn't feel, he didn't feel like he was anywhere. Remember I told you we were undone, no reserves. I mean, we're in the middle of just this intense, you know, gut-wrenching physically, you could feel this pain. And where's God? And you begin to question everything. Like, oh, well, pastor, you question something? Everything. God, where are you? You feel like your hopes are dashed. Everything you've been praying for, for your son to get healed, to, you know, that song that we sang during worship. You know, I speak the name of Jesus. Well, where were you? You're just pouring it all out. All the questions. Is this even real? Is heaven real? Is hell real? Is the Bible real? Have I wasted my whole life doing this? Like, you question everything. And I'll just tell you right now, you know that doesn't bother God. He's a big guy. He can handle it. It's when you don't. It's when you fake it. It's when you're not authentic. It's when I hear people who, you know, sometimes pastors are the worst at this. Like, yeah, my kid died, but I'm back in the pulpit the next day. Bless God, he's on the throne, and I'm going to trust him. I'm like, you are so full of BS. Sorry, can I say that? Okay. You just are. <laughs> like, you're, you know, that's baloney. Your faith can't be refined unless you go through it. And going through it is going like, hey, everything's good. You're not going through anything. You're just ignoring it. Like, to really go through it is you're engaging it. You're engaging God in the process of it. And you're pouring out your heart and your anger and your frustration. And you're saying, I don't get it. God, are you good? This pain hurts. And here's what happened during this process as we did this, both Lisa and I, I didn't find God. God found me. God found me. God found Lisa. I didn't find him, but he came in, his presence. God found me. It's the reason why David, when he wrote this psalm, he said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I've read this verse hundreds of times. I've preached on this verse over my lifespan of being in ministry. This never was more real because I never knew what it was really like to be brokenhearted and absolutely crushed. And I've been through a lot. Y'all have heard my story over the 23 years I've been here. I've shared a lot of heartbreak and things that I've been through. I've been, even with my relatives dying, my mom and dad and everything. I, nothing compares to this. I now know what that means. I know what it means to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. And the Lord met us there. That's the God we serve. God will find you. He cares about you. He wants you to know that he wants to meet you where you are if you're suffering and going through pain and loss and grief and to have courage. See, that's the key is to have the courage to walk with him through your pain. Okay, super important. Elijah doesn't run, he's running to the mountain. We need to run to the mountain and walk with God. It takes courage to actually walk with God through your pain. I'll tell you right now, it's super easy to run away. 
to medicate, to ignore, or just to be mad and bitter, but to push through that and to draw close to God. Something happened early on in the grief with us, and, and it, I wrote it down in my journal, but I didn't come back to it until a few months later because I wasn't ready for it. But God was already there. He was already trying to be close to us. And I wrote this down in my journal, and it was uh, the morning of the funeral service for our son here. And so it was early in the morning, and I was laying in bed. I was awake, and, and I just, just kind of was praying and having this moment knowing that, you know, just in a few hours, everybody's going to show up at the house and the casket and the, you know, funeral car. And, and God spoke this word and it was, it was it, I felt it was so profound. I got up and wrote it down right away because I didn't want to forget because I forget everything. So I wrote it down and, and he said this, I have spared your son a life of suffering from a world that would have treated him so cruelly over the coming years. So instead, I brought him home. And I healed him. And then he said, Robert, you don't understand eternity like I do. I would say that's true for all of us. We don't understand eternity like God does. That's why this last point is so important, to let God begin to reshape your future because he knows your future. He knows your lost loved one's future. We don't, he does. He knows. This is what we call in the Bible called redemption. Redemption. Redemption is this idea of Romans 8:28, where he says that in all things, God works together for good for those that who were, you know, love him and are called by his name. He didn't say, and the verse is really important, he didn't say all things are good. He said he'll work all things to good. The redemption, he'll redeem all things. Death is not good. Death is not part of God's plan. Death is part of the curse and part of sin in our world. But God is going to take what happened to our son and bring purpose and bring a future to it. That's not just me on, you know, grieving like, oh, it's going to be good. It's, no, God is going to do it. God is going to figure it out. God is going to make something good for his purposes, that's why I said early on, we're grieving appropriately. What do we mean by that? We mean that we're healing and we know that there's a purpose that is birthing and coming into our lives greater than it ever was before. Because how could everything be the same when you lose a kid? It's not. Everything changes. You move forward, but let God move that forward for you. This is the whole plan of redemption. The primal drive of life that gives us resilience is trying to get back to the good of the Garden of Eden. And we go through the process of redemption and ultimately to future restoration. Lisa and I believe very strongly that God is already writing a new story because God is good and God is a God who redeems. And my question is for you is this, are you willing to let God reshape your future? Are you willing to let God take the pencil and pen and help shape and help write the story? We could spend a lifetime asking why. Why did this happen? One of the things we said literally in the hospital room as our son laid there on the gurney, we looked at each other and we said, no regrets, no woulda, coulda, shouldas. Nope, we're not doing that. No woulda, coulda, shouldas. And they come at you every day. You just got to keep shoving them down. <laughs> but yeah. What is God doing? Our job is simply this. Figure out what God is doing in your life. And just join him. <laughs> join him. Don't run. What is God trying to do in your life? And just join him in that. So what's next? What's next in our life? I don't know. We're just going to keep joining him, <laughs> right? We're going to keep moving with him. We're going to keep trusting him. We're not done grieving. We're not done 
you know, we're not over it. We're, you know, but we're okay. We're grieving adequately, or what, what do we say not adequately? <laughs> yeah, appropriately, thank you. But what about you? What's next for you? That's always the question, right? What's next for you? We believe this, me speaking today, is part of the purpose of God, of just trying to bring our story as hard as it is to get up here. Last night I said to Lisa, and I'm going to end right now, I said, yeah, I changed my mind. I'm not doing this. She's like, yeah, you're preaching tomorrow. You can't change your mind now. Yeah, you can't be done yet. <laughs> I was having like a, my own panic attack. <laughs> and I said, yeah, no, if this helps, awesome. This helps, you know, one person. That's all that matters. So that's how we want our story to matter. We want to help people on their life's journey. I'm going to pray right now, and I want to pray specifically for any of you that may be struggling and just are in pain and whatever kind of loss or stuff you're going through right now. And it's just really a hard season. I want to pray for you. Um, and so when we pray, um, I'm going to have you just raise your hand. You don't need to get up or anything, but just keep it up long enough so I can see you. I'm visual, and so when I see your face, sometimes God brings that per- your, per- you know, your face back to me, and I just say a prayer even if I don't know you or know your name. And so I just want to pray specifically for if you're mourning, right? If you're going through it right now, you're going through a tough time and and you just need prayer and you want God to whisper to your heart. You may not be at the point yet where you can see a purpose or a future. You just might not be there emotionally or spiritually. And that's okay. This is a process. It doesn't matter where you're at. Let God, let his presence begin to envelop you and kind of grab your heart in his hands and begin to speak to you. Okay, will you pray with me? God, we love the stories when your power is out there and you do these big, great things. But I also love the stories of your gentleness and kindness, of how when we're really struggling, you know appropriately how to how to take care of us and how to love us and how to strengthen us and how to bring peace even in the midst of sorrow and tears that we have. And so, Lord, a number of us are going to raise our hands in just a minute. And so, Lord, I want you, I'm asking you to take note of who these people are. And so if that's you, every head bowed still, eyes closed, just put your hand up right now so I can see you. Yep, I see you on the left here. Yes, in the back, in the middle, in the back. Yes, on this side. Yep, I see you. Okay, yes, I see you. Anyone else? Okay, hands all over the room. That's awesome. Okay, I see you in the back. Thank you. Okay. God, we ask you to take note of the hands and the hearts that were raised just now. (laughs) Do what only you can do, and that is as our as our spirit of God, your presence, as our counselor, our comforter. Give us even just for a moment some peace and hope. We love you, Lord. We love that you are close to us when we need you most. In Jesus' name.